Hello, and thank you so much for joining us again online for worship. Today, we're starting a new series on the parables of Jesus. And the reason why we're doing this is because the parables have this unique and powerful ability to relate us and connect us to the kingdom of God. And Jesus does this through stories and metaphors. You and I know what yeast does to bread. A lot of us know what it's like to plant something and cultivate it and expect there to be fruit. You know the feeling of inviting people to an event or a party only to have them not show up. We know what it's like to lose something that we love and then to go out and and seek for it and look for it. We've all compared ourselves to others and thought, at least I'm not like that person. And we've all encountered someone in need and wondered, should I be helping that person today? So Jesus uses parables and, and these common experiences that we have to connect us to the kingdom of God. And that's what I want for us in this series, to hear Jesus telling us stories and teaching us to see his kingdom through the lens of everyday life. His kingdom can break through at any time because his kingdom is not of this world. You see, the kingdom of God is is not primarily a, a region or a realm. The Bible describes it more as a rule and as his reign. To put it simply, When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he's not talking about a place. He's primarily talking about a person. There's a psalm that my wife and I have been reflecting on lately. And it's Psalm 22, especially verse 3. The psalm reads, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. You are holy and enthroned on the praises of Israel. And that image just captivates me. To think that wherever we are, regardless of whether we're here at church or in our homes and living rooms, that as we worship and praise our holy God, he is enthroned over us. So today, as you are worshiping from your homes, worshiping in your rooms, either by yourselves or with your family, would you hold on to that truth? Would you remember that truth? That as you are worshiping him, that as you are praising him, he is enthroned over you. He's enthroned over your family and over your household. And may that encourage you to to sing a little louder, to worship with a little bit more faith and fervor today. Now, as we look at the parables, I want to say three introductory things. First, um, or just how, how we should read them and what we should look for as we are reading the parables. First, we need to remember that the parables are theological. They're theological, that they teach us something about God. Think about the story of the prodigal son and the, and the, the storyline of the father. Second, we need to remember that the parables are ethical. Now, when I say ethical, we're not just talking about general morality or general ethics. Rather, Jesus is teaching on the ethics of God's kingdom, how God's kingdom people should live, how God's kingdom people should respond and relate to him and respond to one another. But thirdly, and the most important aspect of the parables, is that they are Christological. They're Christological, meaning that they are describing something very important about Jesus and his mission. Jesus is the one who has inaugurated God's kingdom. He's the one who brings it from heaven down to earth. And Jesus is the one who will one day return to consummate it. He will come and bring the fullness of God's kingdom to his people in the new heavens and the new earth. 
And so would you remember those three things as you personally are reading through the parables or as we're going through this series, that the parables are theological, that they're ethical, and they're most importantly Christological. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage today. It's the first in our series on the parables, and it comes to us from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. And trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Amen, the word of the Lord. As we look at these two parables, which are meant to be understood together as a unit, I want us to consider three things. First, the nature of the kingdom. Second, our response to the kingdom. And finally, the joy of the kingdom. And so we're going to be considering the nature, our response, and the joy of the kingdom. The first thing we need to see is that there's a hiddenness to the kingdom of God. Now, we wouldn't expect this. We would think that when, when God shows up or when Jesus arrives, everything should be just so obvious, so blatant. But as we see in the scriptures, not everything, not everyone sees and understands who Jesus is. There's always something surprising always something paradoxical about the kingdom of God. And we're told in the first parable that the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. This treasure has been forgotten by its owner, or perhaps the owner has passed away. And a man who's probably a worker in the field, a tenant farmer, he finds this treasure to his surprise and his delight. And then he goes and he sells everything that he has to buy the field and obtain the treasure. Now, before there were banks, it was common for people to hide their wealth underground, to bury it away for safekeeping. And that's why even today there are treasure hunters, right, who go around to to places looking for other people's treasure, forgotten treasure. In 2013, uh, there was a man and his wife who were walking their dog on their property in Sierra Nevada. And while they were walking, they saw an old rusted tin can kind of jutting out from the ground. They dug it out to see what it, was, what it was doing there and what was in it. And when they opened it up, they found that it was filled with precious gold coins. They were absolutely shocked and astonished. And so they went back into that area and they kept looking for more tin cans to see if there were more treasures for them to unearth. In the end, they found eight cans filled with coins that ended up being worth $10 million. That was the assessment, $10 million. And it was the largest find of buried coins ever in the United States. You can look it up. It's called the Saddle Ridge Hoard. Saddle Ridge Hoard. The funny thing is that the husband and wife, they didn't know what to do with this gold and they weren't sure you know, uh, how much it was worth and things like that. And so the safest place that they could put it in was in an ice chest and they buried it under a, a, a pile of wood as well. And so buried treasure just got reburied for a while. And this couple stumbled across a treasure that they weren't looking for. But when they found it, it completely changed their lives. In the second parable, we have a merchant who is a seeker of fine pearls. He was actively seeking and searching for precious pearls. That was his profession. And one day he found a pearl of great value, 
a pearl that he had never seen before. It was so beautiful and so valuable. It was such a treasure to him that he too sold everything that he had to obtain it. And I believe Jesus is telling us these two parables. He's putting these two parables together for a reason. And his first point is this. Even though the kingdom is hidden, even though the kingdom is hidden, even though it's difficult to understand, it can be found by all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances. People who are seeking like the merchant and people who are unsuspecting like the farmer. I know that for many of us, we grew up in the church. We grew up going to Sunday school and and observing Sunday worship, even going on retreats or even mission trips. And throughout our youth, In our adult years, we wrestled with our faith. Some of us may have even considered or studied other religions just to be sure whether or not Christianity was true. But in the end, like the merchant, when we encountered the pearl of great price, when we truly saw the beauty and the worth of the gospel of Jesus, he became our everything. And that's a path that God has for many of us. But for other of us, others of us, we became Christians by surprise, right? We weren't looking for it. Maybe somebody just invited us to an event and we just casually or flippantly attended and then that changed everything there. I always smile when I think about the conversion testimony of one of our deacons. He became a Christian as a freshman in college when a complete stranger came up to him and evangelized to him. He didn't grow up in a Christian family, But right there on the spot, he recognized the treasure of Jesus. He confessed his sin and he professed Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He wasn't looking for it, but God came looking after him. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 65, he writes this. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. This is the heart of that God has for each of us. Whether we are seeking or not, whether we are confused or or feeling distant from him, God is ready to meet you and he is able to save you. His kingdom can break through into your life at any time, whether you are suspecting it or not. Jesus is the door and he makes us this promise. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Do you believe that? Will you take Jesus Christ at his word? So then how must we respond to this treasure? Knowing, knowing that God can come and find us. That knowing that God has made himself available to us. Knowing that Jesus Christ has announced and opened the door for us to enter into his kingdom. How do we respond? Now, we see another thing about the parables here. They're not just stories designed to tickle our ears. And they're not just stories to have a nice moral ending. The parables call us to action. They call us to action. As Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God, his hearers are required to make a decision. And this is why the parables were so divisive among the crowds. Some people in the crowds would hear him and they would be won over. They would become followers of Jesus Christ. Other people, as they heard the very same parable, they would be confused. They would be turned off. They'd be discouraged and they would leave. They would depart. 
And finally, a third group of people who heard the parables, they would be offended. They'd be enraged. And they would actually become enemies of Jesus Christ because of what he taught about the kingdom of God. But here's the truth. Okay? No one remained indifferent. When Jesus Christ taught his parables, when he spoke the truths about God's kingdom, no one remained indifferent. There was always a response. And that's what Jesus is looking for. He wants us to identify with these characters. And he wants us to ask ourselves, what would we do? How would we respond in that situation? If we were that farmer who found treasure in the field, if we were that merchant who found a pearl of great price, how would we respond? James Boyce wrote a book on the parables, and he summarizes how these two characters responded to the treasure of God's kingdom. He says, first, they recognized the value of what they found. Second, they determined to have it. Third, they sold everything in order, to make, in order to make their purchase. Fourth, they acquired the treasure. And friends, we need to ask ourselves similar questions today. Do you see the surpassing value of God's kingdom? Are you determined to have it? If you see it, if you know it, do you want it? Are you resolved to have it? Thirdly, what would you be willing to give up? in order to attain it, right? What is the cost of that kingdom to you? What would you give up to have it? And finally, have you acquired it? Do you have it? Do you know what it's like for Jesus Christ to to reign over you? What it's like for Jesus Christ to be your king? And if we're honest, these questions can make us uncomfortable. They can make us uncomfortable, especially when we start talking about sacrifice, especially when we talk about cost and giving things up in order to attain and receive the kingdom of God. Practically, we don't want to liquidate all of our assets just to become disciples of Jesus. If that's what it takes, we ask practically, well, how can anyone survive as a Christian today? How can anyone be a Christian and a parent at the same time? How are we going to provide for our families? How are we going to pay for schooling and put clothes on the backs of our children if we give everything up just to follow Jesus? And then others of us might think about this theologically and say, well, theologically, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. Is Jesus saying that the kingdom can be bought, right? Whatever happened to salvation by grace through faith? and not by works. It seems like a work if we're selling and liquidating all of our assets to receive the kingdom. And this is where we need to remember that these parables are stories that are meant to target our hearts. Okay? Jesus here in, in Matthew 13, he's not teaching on, on specifically the doctrine of salvation, how it is you and I are, are justified, how, you, how it is that you and I will be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to our God. Okay, he's not talking about and he's not teaching on the doctrine of salvation. In truth, the truth is we could sell all that we have and we would still fall short of being able to, to get ourselves into God's kingdom, to get ourselves into his family. What Jesus is doing in these parables is he's describing the priceless nature and value of his kingdom. And then he's asking us this heart question. What am I worth to you? What is my kingdom worth to you? What is a relationship 
with me worth to you? And if there's something all of us understand, it's worth. Okay? We all understand worth. We measure worth in all sorts of ways. Is something worth our time? Is it worth our energy? Is it worth our money? Is it worth that sacrifice? If I were to ask you, what is the craziest and most extraordinary thing you've done because you thought it was worth it? Okay? I think that'd be a great community group discussion just to, to get our conversations flowing. What crazy sacrifices have you made because you thought something was worth it? Okay. And in these parables, Jesus is asking our hearts, each and every one of us, what am I truly worth to you? What is my kingdom worth to you? And as we hear his voice, our hearts will immediately go in one of two directions. Okay. When he asks that hard question, we will immediately just naturally respond. Some of us will say, yes, Lord, you are worth it all. You are worth my everything. And others of us will say, no, God, you're not. You're not worth it all. There are things that I honestly love and cherish more than you. God, I want to give you some. I will gladly give you some, but you can't have it all. And today I want you to ask yourselves, what are those things that you love and cherish and value above God? What are those things that you're not willing, right? That you're not willing to give up, not willing to surrender, that you are withholding from him? What is so important about those things? What's so important about those things that you grasp them so tightly? You see, friends, I don't believe that in order to follow Jesus, we have to make a, a vow of poverty, that we have to liquidate all of our assets and, and give them away and, and offer them to charity or whatever it might be. I don't think that that's what it takes to become a disciple. But for us to truly experience the kingdom of God, for us to truly experience Jesus Christ as our king and as our Lord, we must make a vow of unity. We must make a vow of unity. That as Jesus Christ offers himself wholly to you, that we should respond, we must respond by offering ourselves, giving ourselves wholly to him. In the gospel, he becomes ours and we become his. When I got married, I experienced what it meant to be united to someone. I experienced a taste of what it meant to give all of myself to someone. Suddenly my time was not my own. My money was not my own. My possessions, my priorities were not my own. Everything, right, after I got married, everything was, was in the plural, okay? It was in the plural, not in the singular. What was once mine became ours. Decisions were made as a husband and as a wife. Sacrifices were made for one another and for our family. And now I didn't have to sell everything, in order to make Alice my wife, okay? I went into some credit card debt because I had to buy a bunch of stuff, right? But I didn't have to sell everything to make Alice my wife. But I had to offer her everything for me to be truly united to her. That's what our marriage is gonna be built on, right? For me to offer myself to her and for her to offer herself to me. And I think that this is a glimpse of what it means for us to say, yes, God, you are my treasure. Yes, God, you are my everything. Yes, Lord, you are worthy of it all. Our education, 
our time, our money, our children, our gifts, everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to him. And every once in a while, God will test our faith just as he tested Abraham and his son Isaac. He will test our faith and he may ask you, then change your career. He may ask you, then give up that money. He may ask you, then let your kids become missionaries or just start off with let your kids go on a mission trip. I think today that's, that's even more and more difficult for parents who, who are controlling, who are overprotective, who are set with their own goals, dreams, and aspirations for, for how their children are going to live, where, where, where they're going to be, what they're going to do. And God might say, trust me with your children. And for those who truly understand the value of God's kingdom, for those who truly understand um, what a joy, what a treasure it is for Jesus Christ to be your king, for Jesus Christ to be king over your family, over your children, we will say yes. And we will say yes with joy. Charles Spurgeon once said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. You guys see that? There's only two kinds of people. The people who say yes to the Lord. Your will be done in my life. And for those who refuse. For those who refuse to bind all of themselves to Jesus Christ as their rock and redeemer. God will say, fine, you can have that. You chase the idol of money. You live under the idol of your own control. You chase the idol of approval from other people, whether it's your spouse, your parents, your coworkers, your friends. You chase that idol. You chase that idol of power. You want to live according to your ways. You want to exert your rule and authority over people rather than experience Jesus' rule. You can have that. Your will be done. And if that's how you want to live today, the treasure of Jesus Christ will not be yours. You'll hear about it. You'll, 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 you may consider its promises, but in the end you'll say, no, Jesus, you're not worth it. I love that Jesus reminds us that the man who found the treasure in the field, he, he sold everything that he had with joy. He wasn't just making a business decision, a practical decision. He wasn't strong-armed and forced to make that decision. He did it with joy. He sold everything that he had to have the treasure. And all of that was with a joy-filled heart. And the kingdom of God doesn't offer us just future joy. The kingdom of God doesn't just offer you glory and security and peace and happiness after you die. The kingdom of God offers you joy today. Right now, in this moment, you can have the presence of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus in your life, in your heart, right now. Right now. Um, The most radical expression, the most radical expression of of just kind of costly joy and costly sacrifice that that I have observed in my own life happened to me when, um, not happened to me, I heard about, or I, I yeah, I, I heard about when I was in seminary. 
Uh, I was living with a, a professor of Biola University. He had a little like back house or back shed and I was renting a room for him, from him for about a year and, and um, you know, every so often we would just have conversations about church, about ministry, about life. I'd love to pick his brain and he was almost at the end of retirement and he told me about the church that he had started to attend and um, he was really faithful and really committed there and he just said that, that he was sitting at a service and, and in that service, uh, one of their pastors experienced a moral failure and the church was heartbroken. But he was so impacted, profoundly impacted by the way that the church responded in grace, in love, to not only just try to deal with sin in a, in a holy way and in, in, a, in a strong, heavy-handed way, but to really offer forgiveness, to really pursue reconciliation and grace towards this fallen brother. He was so impacted. He was so challenged. He was so encouraged because over the years he'd become pretty cynical against the church and what he had observed with evangelical Christianity throughout the years. And so this is what he did. It was a pretty new church plant trying to get off its feet in Orange County. And, um, he told me that for his retirement, as he worked all his life and published books and, and um, spoke at conferences and his wife was working full-time, that he had uh, saved up about $1.2 million for his retirement. $1.2 million for his retirement. And uh, that's a considerable amount, but he said the Lord moved on his heart to support this church plant, to help it flourish and grow and to fund uh, the ministries uh, that, yeah, that God was designing and building up. And so he gave half of it to the church. That's $600,000 to the church as a love offering uh, to, to invest in the bride of Christ. And I was just floored. I was just like, who does that? Who is willing to give up that much to see the, the advancement, the growth, and the flourishing of a church? And yet he did it. He did it because he knew that, that everything was already God's. That his life, his retirement was in God's hands, right? The last season that he would live out with his wife as a grandfather, right? That joy, that security, that would all be in God's hands and not just because he had planned out his retirement well, right? Jesus Christ has given everything to us. He has offered his entire self for us on the cross as our substitute, as our savior. Brothers and sisters, do you see the worth of his sacrifice? And if he has given us everything, how can we then, as the bride of Jesus, as he offers himself unto us, how can we then say, thank you, Jesus? Yes, I will have you as the lover of my soul but I'm going to withhold from you parts of my heart. I'm going to withhold from you parts of my life. That's not what it means to be married to Jesus. That's not what it means to understand his worth. That's not what it means to be in a relationship with him. He has given up everything for us. How could we not respond and give up everything for him? This is the exchange that Jesus offers us. We offer him our sins. We offer him 
that which is finite, feeble, and weak. And he gives us that which is incorruptible, that which is mighty, that which is beautiful and good and life-giving in himself. Would you consider him? If you've heard his voice today, don't harden your hearts. Would you respond to him first with thanksgiving? Would you respond to him with gratitude? Would you respond to him with trust? Would you respond to him with, with devotion? Would you say to God, I am done giving you just parts of my heart. I'm done with, with this kind of conditional, right? This feeble devotion. God, I want to give you my everything because you have first given everything unto me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the treasure that you offer us in Jesus Christ and your kingdom. I pray that right now, your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our hearts to truly cherish it. Would you give us resolve and a conviction to to desire it more than anything in this world? Help us to desire your kingdom and to realize that you have made that available to us in full by grace through faith alone, through Jesus Christ and the cross. Father, I pray that you would would take and have all of our hearts and that you would help us to, to live as your people. Jesus, help us to live as your bride in joy and in happiness and in true security. Father, we thank you again for the gift of worship as we respond to you with our prayers and with our singing. Would you be enthroned? Would you be enthroned in our hearts and in our homes? In Jesus' name we pray.